Good morning. How you doing? Good. That's pretty good. My name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I work with the, uh, the college and young, young professionals ministry that we have at New Hope called The Greenhouse. By the way, this is an incredible group of young people. And if you get a chance to meet them, uh, it would be in your best interest to do that. They, um, when you read uh, the New Testament, you see in 1 Timothy, it says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech, life, faith, love, and purity. And that's this group of people here. So um, what an awesome privilege I have to work with Dave. Um, my co-pastor in that. And uh, um, I don't even know if I mentioned my name. My name is Joe Testa. And uh, one of the things I wanted to share with you too, that's kind of a, an interesting factoid about my family is we, um, we normally take our Christmas tree down like the, like the weekend after Christmas, but it is still up right now. <laughs> and I wouldn't even have known that, but we had a friend over the other day. He was like, hey, your uh, Christmas tree is still up. I was like, oh yeah, it is. That's interesting. So um, it's a very strange season that we're in, and um, that, I guess that leads us to just let's pray, right? Um, why don't you join me uh, as we go before God here. Father, we're just so thankful uh, that we get to be here today. Lord, I think it's not, we're not here out of obligation. We're here out of uh, our duty. We're here out of just privilege, we get to stand and, and sit and listen and, and hear the word taught. And then we want to be doers, God. So we pray that you'd help us not just to be hearers, but doers. And we just came off of a, a chance to just think about how good you have been to us. And we would just agree together that you have been so good to us in Jesus. And so I pray that the, the words that I share, God, that you would make them come to life. And that you would take what, what little I have to offer, God, and multiply it greatly. And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I kicked the series in Philippians off last fall. And at that point, we were about six months into uh, this pandemic that for all of us really changed our lives, right? I mean, uh, Zoom replaced face-to-face -face friendships and relationships. Masks have hidden our expressions. Fist bumps replaced handshakes. I got a hug earlier uh, in the service for the nine o'clock, which I thought was, I was like, I don't know what to do with this, you know? Um, live stream replaced uh, a more personal connection with our church family. We forgot what it was like to have to wait for a table at a restaurant, right? Um, weddings and funerals were, have been postponed and, and vacations have been canceled. And, we, and many people have missed out on once in a lifetime opportunities. And then there were those who, on a much sadder, heartbreaking note, have lost friends and loved ones due to COVID. Local small businesses closed their doors because of this virus. Lives have just been upheaved because of this worldwide pandemic. Now we fast forward six months ahead, which is where we're at today. And it seems like we're recovering a little bit in the world of COVID. Uh, like we're moving in a positive direction. And yet there are other issues now that we're dealing with that culturally that can feel oppressive and, and, and discouraging. You know, culture has always been in a state of decay ever since sin entered the world in Genesis 3. But from my very limited 44-year-old perspective, it seems like we've hit a bit of a heightened downward spiral in the last five to 10 years that has even been more accentuated here recently. And so in light of all that, we, we need God to challenge and encourage us from his word today. 
Everything in our world is, is off. And it's not just our generation that's felt the offness. Every generation has experienced that same sense of offness. And that's why we, this letter that Paul wrote to the Philippians is good news for us today. God is giving us timeless perspective training because life really is more consistently inconsistent and the world has always been going to hell in a handbasket. And so we need a tweak in our perspective to rise above the challenges that we face on a daily basis. And so this letter that we're going to study needs really to move beyond just teaching. This is a moment where I want you to even kind of imagine that the Apostle Paul is just sitting with us and he's like our coach. He's like a personal trainer in the spiritual realm. He wants to show us how his life, a life so impacted by the gospel of Jesus, by the death, burial, and resurrection of his Savior, can transform our perspective so that we can become regardless kinds of people. People who have joy regardless, regardless of our circumstances. People who have a single-minded focus regardless, regardless of life's ups and downs, who allow the gospel message to influence our mindset regardless, regardless of whatever. This letter that we're looking at embodies really a life with a single-minded focus. And because of Paul's gospel focus, we see that Jesus can transform our mindset so that we can have joy regardless. So that we can be regardless kinds of people. And as we walk with Jesus, he wants to teach us how to respond differently to life regardless, regardless of whatever. Now, I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again. When I preach, I'm really preaching to me first and then to you. And I've said this before, too. Uh, God uses trials to reveal. And over the last year, I've been reminded many times that I am a circumstances-driven kind of person, not a regardless person. But I want to become one. And so I get the privilege to sit in this letter and allow God, through his word, to challenge my perspectives as well. And so here's a, a quick refresher on the background of this letter. Paul, he, he's the pioneer of the gospel. He desired as a pioneer to be a missionary and to preach the gospel in Rome. You know, Rome, it was the, the hub of the great Roman Empire. And so in his writing in other places in the New Testament, you can see his ambition to preach the gospel in this city. But instead of going to Rome as a public proclaimer of the gospel, he ends up in Rome as a prisoner, chained between two prison guards. Now, most people, if it was like you and me in that situation, we would feel frustrated, wouldn't we? Frustrated, discouraged. And, and probably many of us would feel like we were at the end of our rope. But Paul had a different mindset. And so he wrote this letter to the church at Philippi from a prison cell in Rome. And he's going to challenge our, our thinking, our attitude, our perspectives. This letter uh, reveals just how much Jesus had transformed Paul's life. It's a very personal letter. It's probably one of Paul's most personal letters that he's ever written. And he was writing to my people who are Italian. And he's writing in this, in this uh, city that was just full of religious cults. 
I don't know if that's because of the Italian connection too, but, um, and, and Paul's main reason for writing was to say really thanks to this church for standing with him in all the, of his ministry. And he also wanted to write to encourage these people um, to be united, to move toward unity. So today we're going to jump into Philippians and learn what it would look like to have our lives, our lives so wrapped up in Jesus that we could say, Christ is my life regardless. And so if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap to Philippians chapter one, starting in like the second half of verse 18. And as we read this section, Paul is going to challenge us with three shifts in our perspective which, by the way, when I think about discipleship, which is the process of someone becoming more like Jesus, I think about this idea of shifting or tweaking our perspectives because the, the, when you renew your mind with God's word, it's really the first step in making progress in the faith. And so these three perspective shifts Paul gives us, the first one is this. I move toward a Christ is my life regardless kind of perspective when I learn to depend on Jesus. Paul writes this uh, starting at the end of verse 18. He says this, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul starts out by saying that he would rejoice, that he would choose to have joy, even though he was chained between two prison guards. It's a decision Paul made in his life. He was going to rejoice. And here's the key. His focus wasn't on his chains. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, not on his circumstances. He knew that Christ was his life regardless of his circumstances. And then he shows his hand. He says this, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And so I've got three quick observations that I want to give you. The first one is this. I want you to look at Paul's confidence as he writes this. You see that in the way that he says, for I know, I know, definitively, I know. I know that God will deliver me. So where does Paul's confidence come from? Well, his confidence comes from an intimate knowledge of God. He, he's learned to depend on God. He's seen God come through over and over and over again. He learned to depend on God both in the good times when things were going the way that he would want them to go and in the bad times, maybe where things didn't go the way that he would have wanted them to go. When he was shipwrecked, he learned to depend on God. When he was beaten and stoned and in constant danger and hungry, he learned to depend on God. But he also learned to depend on God in the good times as well, during sweet times of fellowship and friendship and laboring for the sake of the gospel. He learned to lean into Jesus. And that's how Paul could be confident now. It's because all along the way, he had learned to trust in who God is so that when he was in a prison, he still trusted in God. And because he had experienced God, he knew that God would help him. And that his help would come from both the prayers of these people and the spirit of God. That was my first observation. The second one is this. As you read this, there's this little word that stands out, and it's just this word, this. You'll see it here. It says, when Paul says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And I want to ask, what is that referring to? Well, the thought here is really connected back to verse 12. See, when you read the Bible, you need to read it in context. It's not written so that things can just be pulled out randomly. 
So this letter is actually a cohesive thread that's kind of holding the whole thing together. And so we have to go back to verse 12. And if you were with us when we started this back in the fall, we looked at the mixed motives of those who were proclaiming the gospel there in Rome. If you remember, some were preaching from pure motives and some were preaching from impure motives. Some were actually proclaiming the gospel to somehow afflict Paul in his imprisonment. But here's what we can take from this. And I, and I really love that we get to go back because that previous section is so good. Paul's rejoicing was that whether from pure or impure motives, the gospel was being proclaimed. Paul had a perspective that Jesus was his life. So the more Jesus got talked about, the better. And so God was going to use the impure and pure proclamation of the gospel somehow as a vehicle to deliver Paul. That was my second observation. My third observation is this question, what does Paul mean by his deliverance? Now, it could be that when Paul wrote that, he was talking about physical rescue, that, that God would rescue him from prison. But I, when Paul talks about his deliverance here, I think he's actually referring to something different. The Greek word for deliverance is the same word that we use for salvation. It's this word soteria. And it's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about the fuller sense of salvation. It's used in Luke 19, where Jesus has this interaction with this guy named Zacchaeus. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, um, but Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was a kind of a despicable person. And, and, and he would extort people. He was stealing money. He would you know, make it so that people, he was taking more from them than, than what should have been taken from them. And he had a change of heart. And he said, I want to pay back all that, that I've wronged people. And you can see this repentance or this desire to turn away from his, his, his wickedness. And he was wanting to follow Jesus. And so in that passage, it says that to, Jesus said, today, Soteria has come to your house. Salvation has come to your house. So, to, so this word soteria is what we all need because all of us at one point in our lives are separated from God because of our sin. And our only hope of soteria is, or salvation or deliverance is to trust fully in what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's critical. It's critical that Jesus is the focus. Because see, Jesus is the central focus in his death, burial, and resurrection because he's the only one that offers to remove your sin blemish completely. That means your, your past, your present, and your future sin blemish. But it's more than that. Jesus not only wants to remove it, but he wants to also give you his righteousness. Hugely important that you get that. I'm not going to go into any more detail about that, but if you would want to dialogue more, you could come and talk to me afterward down here, or there'll be a couple people in the back. Um, Rich, Bruce will be back there, and so will Michael Glenn. And if you want to dialogue more, or if you have other questions, you just want somebody to pray for you, we'd love to do that with you. And so I think Paul was saying that he confidently, confidently trusted that God who started this work in his life would carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. And that his ultimate confidence was that God would complete his salvation and bring him safely home to be with Jesus. 
And God would use Paul's imprisonment and trials as a part of this process in his life. I love how one commentary writer uh, puts it. His name is Dr. Thomas Constable. I really like his, his work. He says this, probably Paul meant that his prison experiences and the consequent furtherance of the gospel were all part of God's completion of the good work that he had begun in him. And so in verse 20, Paul continues. He says this, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, when we read the New Testament and especially like the epistles, the letters in the New Testament, like I wonder often if we kind of elevate Paul to almost like a godlike status. And I, I kind of wonder if sometimes we do that because it, it allows us to kind of think like, hey, uh, you know, Paul is so different than, than where I'm at. Like, I could never be like him. I'm just kind of like a, a normal, ordinary person. But I think Paul really isn't that different than you and me. He's just consistently chosen a path of Jesus being his life. And the longer he's made those choices, the more he's seen God work in him and in those he's ministered to. And so when you do that over and over and over again, you develop a lifestyle, a lifestyle of dependency and obedience to Jesus. And so Paul moved toward a Christ is my life regardless kind of perspective as he learned to depend on Jesus. Here again in verse 20, we see another glimpse of dependency. As Paul was sitting there in prison, he knew that a trial was right around the corner. And there was a good chance that he was going to stand before Caesar. And what would that scenario hold for him? You know, would he be threatened with death if he didn't recant his faith? Would he have the courage he would need to stand firm under pressure? I love the way, again, Dr. Thomas Constable helps shed light on, on Paul's perspective here. And, and, and when you're studying the word, it's really good to have some good commentaries that you look to. Because what these Bible scholars have that I don't have is they have a command of the original languages. And so I wouldn't have seen this if I hadn't actually, you know, read what Dr. Constable had for me. But he says this, the use of the passive be exalted or the be honored, which is what we have in the ESV that we're looking at this morning. Rather than the active, I exalt Christ is unusual. Again, I wouldn't have seen that. It reflects Paul's conviction that essentially the Christian life involves following the leading of God's indwelling spirit rather than seizing the initiative and doing things for God. In other words, what Paul was saying is, I don't have to kind of muster up the strength to make sure that I know exactly what to do in that moment. If I'm faced with, you know, whether I stand firm in my faith or recant. Um, so Paul is basically saying like, God's going to help me do that. I can depend on him and the Holy Spirit to give me the strength to persevere. And so again, I think that's something that we need to learn. We need to learn to depend on God's spirit now to lead us. Because the reality is a day is coming and may already be here when we may be tested or persecuted 
or threatened to give up our faith. And we're going to need the Holy Spirit's help to persevere. Okay, that's the first perspective shift. We learn to depend on Jesus. Now we come to the second perspective shift that we're going to see, and it's this. I move toward a Christ is my life regardless kind of perspective when I learn that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is, this is probably one of the most well-known passages in the New Testament but, and maybe one of the most challenging to own. Paul says this, verse 21. He says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul says that phrase, I think it'd be comparable to one of us saying something like this, college basketball is my life. You know, March Madness, uh, I, I live for March Madness. I'm crazy about Spartan basketball. Go green. See, it's just like, you don't even have to prompt them. They just know it's like what you do. You know, if you cut me, I bleed green. And so really, it could, you could take the, the phrase, my life is all about blank. And, and that would be kind of similar to what Paul is saying when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So, you know, for some people, um, bow hunting is what their life is all about. Or they might say the phrase, I live to eat. Somebody's going to say amen to that, right? No, yeah. Um, chocolate is my life. I said that one for my wife. Um, my work or my business is my life. Or, or the teachers that say something like, cross stitch is life. The rest are just details. You don't know whether to laugh or not, do you? I've never seen a shirt like that, but you get my point. Essentially what we're saying when we say those things is that my, my life revolves around that thing. My thinking is governed by, by this focus. My time is wrapped up in this pursuit. Every aspect of my life seems to hinge on or spin around this desire. And, and the point of all that is this. All of us have something that seeks to undermine Christ being your life. The writers of the Old and New Testament uh, would call these desires or pursuits idols. And what Paul was saying is he's not going to have any of that. Jesus is his life. Every aspect of Paul's life would hinge on him. His thinking would be governed by Jesus. His decision-making somehow was, was run through a Jesus filter. His spending habits and time allocation and heart focus are all yielded to Christ. Now, I got to be honest. When I read that, I feel tension in my life. And I think if you're honest, you probably do too. Like, if you know me, you know, some of the, of the people that are closer in, in my world would, would know what I really enjoy. Like, I really enjoy fishing. Fishing could compete in my world with Christ being my life. And I know even as I say that, I'm like, I can't believe that that could even be true. And for me, what that makes that even more tricky for me is I kind of have a side hustle in the fishing world as well. And so what it really comes down to when I think about this is it really comes down to your heart. And so the question is, can you enjoy sports, the outdoors, food, friendships, and hobbies? 
I think the answer is yes. But there's always an awareness that this thing could creep up and become an idol. Just for clear, I want to give you a good working definition uh, uh, for idolatry. Tim Keller puts it this way. I love how he says this. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that you turn to in order to meet a God-given need, to medicate an emptiness or an aloneness, to satisfy what only God can satisfy. He goes on, he says this, an idol is something we think we can't live without. He says, we think that idols are bad things, but that's almost never the case. The greater the good, the more likely we are to expect that it can satisfy our greatest needs and desires. Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially the very best things in life. Okay, so Paul, he made this incredible statement that for him to live as Christ, but his perspective goes even deeper than that. See, for Paul, Christ was his life. So it wasn't just that he said to live as Christ. He also said to die is gain. See, to die, that just meant that the person who is all about Jesus gets more of Jesus. Not only do we get more of Jesus when we're together with him, but we also lose the part of us that has kept us from being fully devoted to him in this life. I mean, the New Testament teaches that for those who are in Christ, that the moment we die, we're made complete. That when we see him, we're going to be like him. We'll no longer have the struggle with the flesh, the, the part of us that's drawn towards sinful tendencies. When we, became, when we become Christians, we're crucified to our old selves. But we still drag with us through life this, this snakeskin of a flesh and sin nature. And so Paul's got to be thinking that part of death's gain is freedom from his sin nature. But he's also thinking that the gain of fully experiencing who he was created to be as an image bearer of his creator. So sin has so tarnished everything in this world, and yet there's a longing in the human heart for what we were created to be. And so Paul would see death as gain because he, for the first time in his life, would experience who he was created to be. And so Paul's Christ is my life perspective on one hand was all about living for Jesus, in this world. And yet on the other hand, he saw death only as gain because it would mean that he would be with Jesus and all the benefits that come along with that. Now, I don't know about you, but I know some of you might be thinking that that seems kind of dark. But see, I don't think Paul saw it that way at all. He really did see that death was the pathway to the truest life the fullest life possible, where he would get to see his Savior face to face. And where all pain and tears and suffering and sin would be done away with forever. And so Paul wasn't going to go throw himself in front of a train. He's just thinking here that if he had to face martyrdom, it wouldn't be a loss. It'd be a gain. And so he continues, verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Let's unpack that just for a minute here. And Paul's, 
if Paul remains in the flesh, in this life, his focus would be clear. Like he says, it would mean fruitful labor. In other words, Paul would continue to take the gospel to the nations. He would help start churches that help entire communities embrace the gospel. Ultimately, his life would be about helping other people. And specifically, fruitful labor would mean two things. First, it would mean helping lost people come to faith in Jesus. Like Paul would just with an abandon continue to proclaim the gospel to anyone who would listen. And then two, he would help followers of Jesus move toward maturity in their faith. But he was torn, wasn't he? The tension in his own heart, again, was between Christ being his life where he labored fully for the sake of Jesus and his desire to be at home with the Lord. And so you can see this debate going on inside of him. Yet which I shall choose, I can't tell. Like I'm hard pressed between the two. You know, if, if it were up to him, he struggled to say which would be his number one heart's desire. And then he plays his cards again. You know, if you're going to really push me on this issue, then it would be this. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But in verse 24, he continues, he says, but to remain here is more necessary on your behalf. So I want you to push pause here for a moment. Again, we have to ask this question. Is this how we think? Is this your mindset? I mean, do you wake up in the morning and wrestle between a longing to serve people or to depart and be with Christ? Is that the tension in your world? I got to be honest. That is not generally my thought process. This is a man whose life was so captivated by the gospel. Like the psalmist that, that writes, you know, Paul had tasted and seen that the Lord is good. So good that there really was no comparison between Jesus and anything else. And that's why we read this book and we listen to it being preached. Because God is challenging our perspectives as we read it and as we hear it and as we think about it and as we try to apply it to our lives. The word actually talks about being a sword that cuts us open and reveals our heart. It, it slices me open here and reveals that I'm way more fixated on earthly thinking than on heavenly thinking. And if you're anything like me, that's why we wrestle with a Christ is my life perspective. Because when Christ is your life, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You think like this. Paul writes this in another section in the New Testament. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's where your life is. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that brings us really to our final perspective shift today, and it's this. 
I move toward a Christ is my life regardless kind of perspective. When I set my trajectory, the path of my life, at helping others make progress and have joy in the faith. And so Paul finishes this section like this, verse 25. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. And so Paul's statement really revealed that if Christ is your life, then your life is going to be others-oriented. We constantly see this in the New Testament. Life isn't about you. The more Christ is your life, the more your life moves in the direction of the things of God. And God is very interested in people. And so if Christ is your life, you're going to be all about others. You'll think about others. You're going to pray for other people. You're going to help other people. You do all you can to help those around you understand the gospel and those who are followers of Jesus grow up and mature in the faith. This isn't just something for pastors and church staff and vocational missionaries. This is normative for anyone who's a follower of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus rescued you. He ripped you out of slavery. You were enslaved, the Bible says, to the devil, your flesh, and the world. And his rescue of you was amazing. And not only did he rescue you, but he enlisted you in his service. And so you no longer live for yourself, but for him who loved you and gave himself for you. And your life and my life is to be about others. And Paul focuses here in verse 25 again on remaining and continuing with the Christians in this church for their progress and joy in the faith. What he's saying is pretty straightforward. He's all about helping these people grow as Christians. And really that's the whole point of what I'm talking about today. I think one of the primary ways we help people again to make progress in the faith is by this concept of renewing our minds, tweaking and overhauling our perspectives so that the more our thinking aligns with who God is and how he thinks, the more we become like him. And as a result of becoming more like Jesus, we end up having more joy in our lives as well. Because God is the most joyful being in the universe. And so as we shift our perspectives, we begin to experience more joy in our faith as well. And that's why Paul decided he would remain in the flesh. This paragraph ends with verse 26, where Paul brings things full circle so that when he was able to come to these people again, they would glorify God because of what God had done for Paul. And so how are we going to move in the direction of Christ being your life? How are we going to have that shift happen in our mindset? Well, I've got three applications, and then I'm going to close in prayer. The first one, they're actually framed in, in a question. 
So the first question is this. Would you consider training to be a small group leader? We want to have a, a, a whole army of small group leaders in New Hope. Because we want to have tons of people involved in small groups. This is one of those places that you could come in and, and help other people grow up in their faith. It's a mutual, it's probably a place of mutual encouragement, but we need leaders. And so we've been working uh, behind the scenes on this for a number of uh, months here, and we're going to continue to move forward with this. And so if you're in that place and you want to do that, we would, I would love for you to just reach out to Jeff and just send Jeff Schneider uh, uh, an email, just jeff at nhchurch.com. And we're going to be in the process of training a whole bunch of new leaders here over the next several months. There's all kinds of other ways that you could still serve and jump in and help people grow. But that's a real tangible need we have at the church here. The second question I want you to, to consider is, I want you to consider this. Would you set your phone or your watch to go off every day at noon? And would you write the word gospel in there? And every day when your alarm goes off, would you think about how good God has been to you in the gospel? Would you give thanks to God for what he has done in his rescue of you? If you're here and you're not a Christian yet, would you take that moment and just think about how much you need a savior? And the other thing I want you to do with that, that moment is I want you to pray for someone who's outside of the community of faith and just pray that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel and that somehow he would use you in their life. The last question I have for you is this. Would you ask yourself this question? What is standing in the way of Christ being your life? And whatever that thing is, I want you to write it down and I want you to talk to somebody that you trust. And I want you to ask them to pray for you. Pray that Christ would be exalted far beyond whatever that thing is. And so again, growing as a follower of Jesus is all about shifting our perspectives and renewing our thinking and our beliefs. And so let's close and, and ask God to do that in a greater way in our lives. Let's pray. God, we uh, thank you that you have given us Paul's life as an example. But I, I just believe that you have more for us than what we are currently experiencing. And Lord, a lot of that is dependent on what we choose to do with our days. And so God, I pray that you would, would cause this church to be a group of people who wants to be more like Jesus. That you would put things in our life to cause us to grow up in our faith. Lord, I know it's a dangerous thing to pray, but I pray that you would do whatever it takes to make us like your son. And so God, we thank you for the grace to move forward, to make progress. We thank you for Jesus, for making it possible to even know you. And we lift all of this up in his name. Amen. Thanks for being here this morning. Have a great week.